Good morning again. Uh, my name is Jeff Forrester. If you don't know, I'm one of the elders that serve here at Elam. And I just want to introduce uh, another elder, Larry Short, who is going to be speaking to us today. Uh, I'm anxious to hear what he has to say about God's faithfulness. So, Thank you, Jeff. Larry. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Pastors Martin and Brian are at a pastor and wives retreat, and while the cat's away, the mice will play. And uh, <laughs> so I am, I'm grateful to the Lord for the opportunity this morning to um, share my heart with you. And uh, God's been working on some things with me over the past couple of weeks. And uh, my prayer, uh, Father, my prayer is that the work that you are doing in me, and your words to me, that I would be uh, faithful to speak those, not simply what I've uh, prepared, but Father, um, what the message that you have for people here this morning who may be hurting and in need, and need a word and a touch from you. I am incapable as a human being and as uh, just a layperson here of doing what needs to be done to convey that message, but we know and we trust that you, through your Holy Spirit, can make it happen. So, Father, thank you for just your presence here in our midst. Thank you for your steadfast love for us and for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, I'm going to, some things have changed in my life in the last three months, so I'm going to give you guys a quick update on kind of what's going on, first of all. Um, my wife and I moved up here September of 95, right? So 21 years, we, we just celebrated. Uh, we attended Elam our first weekend we were here and, and fell in love with this church and have never looked anywhere else since. And so we've been incredibly blessed to be here. Our kids started out attending with us. They're now grown. Our son Nathan is 33, still lives in the area with his wife Becky, whose parents, uh, Cheryl is our church administrator and her husband Steve, you know and love here. And so we, we finally call them our outlaws. And um, our, our daughter, Amanda, and her husband, Mike, and our granddaughter, Annabelle, who's now five and in kindergarten, which is really a thrill for us. They live in Pennsylvania. We get to go see them in December so um, for Christmas. So we're really excited about that. So moved up with an organization uh, I think most of you know called World Vision. Um, they did a relocation in, in 1995 up here, and I was with World Vision for 23 um, years almost. And uh, I was laid off. In August. So the last uh, three months, uh, three months and a few days, I have been a laid off person. And I, I'm now working uh, part time for the Puyallup School District. My wife also works part time as a school nurse there. I'm doing uh, AVID tutoring. AVID is a pre college program and, and doing that at, at Emerald Ridge. Uh, Stacy Kiram, are you here? Yes. Stacy also does AVID tutoring. I just discovered that recently. And um, love, loving working with uh, young adults, college bound, uh, high schoolers and junior hires, having a great time doing that. Um, my wife and I, um, let's see, how many years ago, was it 14, a little over 14 years ago, uh, began working with young adults here at Elam, and we, uh, I'm going to, since I've got the microphone, I'm going to put in a pitch for Pulse, which is our, our young adults community group here. Great group of young adults, uh, very, um, I want to say transient, that's not the right word, very, uh, a lot of people move in and out because of the age group and what, people are getting married, we just did our 17th wedding. And uh, we really love Pulse, and, and it's a group that blesses and ministers to us. We meet on Friday nights uh, for Bible study, for prayer. I think it's about the most serious Bible study group I know of here at Elam that just constantly hits the word, verse by verse, every week. Well, one of the most serious. <laughs> 
All right, I just I already opened a can of worms. <laughs> can of worms. I better go on. Uh, um, if you, you all know me, um, my calling is as a writer, and uh, I'm a wannabe novelist. Um, when I was in my 20s, I wrote the great American novel, or so I thought, and. Uh, I uh, spent a couple years writing it, and then I spent a couple years uh, shopping it around at, d- at different publishers, and couldn't find a publisher to agree with me that it was a great American novel, so I ended up in a desk drawer for 30-plus years uh, collecting dust. And um, I started reading novels when I was in second grade, and and were just voraciously consumed them. And so it, um, literature has had an incredible impact on my life. We're going to talk a little bit about my topic this morning, which is betrayal and the faithfulness of God, or betrayal and redemption, as as it's depicted in literature. Just a small amount, so it's not going to be a lit lesson, so so um, hang in there with me for a few minutes. But betrayal is a, a theme that um, is a dark stain upon, that runs all throughout literature. I mean, you barely can, can find a novel that doesn't talk about betrayal. My own novel, called Fountains of the Deep, uh, had elements of betrayal and redemption in it. And uh, if you're interested, I'm, I really appreciate those of you who have read it, reviewed it, commented on it, and I'm in the process now trying to get professional reviews. If you are interested in it, you can find it on Amazon. Just search on my name, and I've got an author page there, and you can, you can download it there. But um, I'm working on a second novel, Love Writing. Uh, that's what I did for World Vision. I started with World Vision. I was a writer and an editor. And I, I was thinking in preparing for this message, which Pastor Martin asked me to, to, to talk on Genesis 50 and the in, incredible story of family betrayal in the Bible and the impact that it had and how Joseph responded to that. I was thinking about uh, novels that talk about betrayal. And probably a lot of them come to your mind. One of the most famous is Julius Caesar. And it's the story um, by Shakespeare, of course, of, of Julius Caesar. And you may have seen the play, or you may have read the read the read the book. And uh, essentially, um, the betrayal in there comes when Julius Caesar's good friend Brutus joins with the entire Roman Senate in assassinating um, uh, the the general Julius Caesar because he was on the path to become uh, the supreme ruler of Rome. And they stab him to death, the whole group of the Senate. I mean, people have to be really afraid of you to do something like that. And even his, his close friend Brutus uh, participates in that. So this, the famous phrase that you probably have heard, et tu, Brute, came out of that. So Julius Caesar saying, and you, Brute. And it was the, the knife of his friend Brutus that was the, the deepest wound that was driven in um, to the side of Julius Caesar in that assassination. Um, I love science fiction. I could talk science fiction all day, so I'm not even going to go there. But Christian literature, uh, one of my favorite authors, of course, is C.S. Lewis. And I know you all love uh, C.S. Lewis and his children's, quote-unquote, children's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, really famous betrayal that occurs in there is the betrayal of Edmund, one of the Pevensey um, siblings who betrays his siblings to the, the White Witch. And for what? You remember why he betrayed his siblings? Turkish Delight. Have you ever tasted Turkish Delight? It's terrible. <laughs> well, it's not terrible, but it's not something you would want to betray your, your siblings over. It's just not that great. So I'm not sure the power of Turkish Delight and exactly why that happened. But um, there's all these stories in the literature of betrayal and redemption. Redemption is great in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, the, the great lion Aslan lays down his life on the stone table simply to redeem the life of Edmund Pevensey, the squirrely little character from the White Witch, lays down his life for Edmund. And, 
And then, after he comes back to life, convinces Edmund's siblings to forgive him for the betrayal that he, he brought on them. So I still think the best stories of betrayal are in the Bible. And the most powerful stories of betrayal are in the Bible. And the very first story of betrayal in the Bible, well, if you don't count what happened in the Garden of Eden, which was definitely a betrayal of Satan. Satan betrayed Eve. Eve betrayed her husband Adam. Adam then betrayed his wife Eve. And all three of them betrayed their God, their creator God, in the act. Incredible betrayal. But one page later is the first story of sibling betrayal in the Bible, and it's a doozy. It's the first person, think about this, the first person born on the planet, Abel, Cain, the older brother, who murdered his younger brother, Abel, in an act of incredibly brutal betrayal. Lured him out to a field because he was jealous, because of, uh, of what he perceived to be God's smile upon his younger brother and not on him, and took probably a rock or a knife, it doesn't say, and, and bashed in his brains and murdered him in a field. The first person, what a precedent <laughs> for us, you know. Um, and you know, as I thought about that passage, I thought, oh my goodness, what, you know, when God confronted uh, Cain, if I had been God, what would I have said? I'd have, I'd have said something like, okay, stand right there, you're going to be a heaping pile of ash in a moment, lightning bolt, boom, done, you know. That would have been what I would have done. And, and so it's really interesting to me to see how God responds to Cain's whining, or to his, uh, his betrayal. Um, he says, really very gently, what have you done? And then when God pronounces judgment, he basically says, being a farmer, Cain is no longer going to work for you. You are going to become a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Um, that sounds like a light sentence to me <laughs> for, for being the first person on the planet who kills, who kills a sibling. And, and Cain starts whining at that point, and he says, he says, oh, how can I handle this? And what is, how does God respond? If it were me, I would have said, Shut up, whiner. If somebody kills you, you'll get a taste of what you did to your brother, and you deserve that, and you're on your own, you know. Thankfully, I'm not God. Um, God says, <laughs> that's what I'd say. I'm serious. God says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. He tattooed this guy with don't touch or something like that. I don't know what he said. It would be interesting to know. And then it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He nodded off, apparently. Sorry. (laughs) So God's message to Cain, when you boil it down, was what? Even though you did the most unthinkable thing that you could do as a human being, you took the life of another person who was vulnerable and trusted you, your brother, Abel, you still have value to me. You still have value as a human being. I'm still willing to stand up for you, protect you. I, I value your life. When you think about that, that just blows your mind. If you're th- sitting here thinking, God doesn't value me because I've done horrible things, I've betrayed someone, whatever, think about that. Think about how God valued Cain. Now, we don't know if this... You have uh, seeds of redemption in that story, but we don't know if it's... You know, we don't know what ends up happening totally with Cain. He kind of goes off to the land of Nod. But there's another amazing story a little later in the book of Genesis, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And um, it's a betrayal uh, of a sibling. It's similar to the story of Edmund, in a way, I guess, and it's the Pevensey siblings. 
Um, it's a, it's a, what must have been an incredibly painful betrayal. And the fact that it's a betrayal of siblings illustrates to me uh, that some of the worst and most painful personal betrayals that we can experience are those that are dealt to us by loved ones, aren't they? By friends, by spouses, husband betraying wife, wife betraying husband, uh, parents betraying their children, children betraying their parents, other close family relatives, siblings betraying each other. And I don't, on this count, I don't speak from what I know because I, uh, I'm blessed to have an incredibly um, tight-knit family. My, I have uh, two brothers and two sisters, and my parents were both believers. They both passed now, but uh, we've always been a family that sticks together in times of, of difficulty, and I could tell you stories about that, but I won't. But um, And I have a wife, a spouse, who, who, who loves me and who's a model of faithfulness. And our kids uh, are great kids, and our granddaughter is growing up to be a great, great granddaughter. So I, I'm thankful I don't have, you know, these kinds of betrayals to tell you about in my story. But I know many of you are sitting here who do, and have experienced the incredible pain of being betrayed by a loved one. And so I'm hoping that Joseph's story and how he processed through what God was doing will be a blessing to you. But it's a deeply painful and poignant story. Um, Starting in chapter 37, we meet the 12 sons of Jacob. They're the leaders of the future tribes of Israel. And the story continues, unlike the story of Cain, which is, I think, 14 verses or something like that in Genesis 4, the story continues for 13 chapters. It's huge. It's, and I would challenge you, if you get a chance to read it, it's great. Really interesting. And I'm just going to summarize it. 13 chapters is a little bit too much for me to preach. But um, as you know, uh, Joseph has a young man, 17 years old, a favorite of his father. Um, He's, a vul- he's in a vulnerable position. He's a guy who shares his heart and his life and the dreams that the Lord's planning within him with his older brothers, his 11 older brothers, who are shepherds. And uh, he shares perhaps unwisely. When you look at it, you think, eh, you know, um, should you really have said what you said about the dream that you had to your older brothers that they were bowing down to you, which, which would happen someday? But should you have shared that? His older brothers get ticked off. They don't like it. And so as a group... And imagine this, your 11 older brothers as a group coming up with a plan to kill you because they're mad at you or to get rid of you. And they would have killed him. They wanted to kill him. But one of them, his conscience is a little bit too sensitive, and he says, ah, let's not kill him. Let's just dig a big pit, throw him in there, and then when a, a slave trading group of Egyptians comes by, we'll sell him into slavery in, the, in Egypt and be done with it. And they do that. And... Um, they take the beautiful coat that his father made for him, the coat of many colors. They, they shred it, they dip it in blood, and they go to dad and they say, oh, we found Joseph's coat. He must have been mauled by a wild animal. And, and so the betrayal is not simply of Joseph. It's of Joseph's father and their father as well. And the circle of betrayed widens in the midst of this. And so you know the rest of the story. Joseph's life um, is narrowly saved. He is sold into slavery in Egypt. Um, and you know the, the various trials that he goes through. He, he is bought by uh, Potiphar, a, 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 an official in Egypt, and Potiphar's uh, wife, unfaithful wife, comes on to Joseph. Joseph faithfully flees the scene and um, ends up getting framed, thrown into the deepest, darkest dungeons of Egypt. 
and he's there for years. And um, God then miraculously raises him out of that circumstance by giving him the ability to interpret the dreams and visions of the most powerful man on the planet at the time, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And ultimately, God raises Joseph up to become the second most powerful person in Egypt, essentially the prime minister. And he does that for a reason, because he knows there's, there's coming three years of plenty and three years of famine. And Joseph has revealed that, and so he plans wisely for how Egypt is going to survive that. And God continues to do his work through that. The part I want to talk about, the part that we're going to read on the verse that is coming, the verses that are coming up, uh, occurs at the very end of Genesis, chapter 15. It's after Joseph's brothers have come groveling before the prime minister of Egypt, hoping for food during this horrible famine. And they don't recognize that the person they're groveling to is their brother whom they sold into slavery. Um, Joseph recognizes them and goes through this interesting process of having them bring out his youngest brother, Benjamin, and his father, Jacob, and eventually reveals all to them. And they are obviously shocked and dismayed. Here's the second most powerful on the planet that you you almost killed and sold into slavery, and now we are totally at his mercy. So let's read. Not together, I'll read it. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God speaks to me through this passage and through the response of Joseph to his brothers. The fact that he wept when these um, betrayers prostrated themselves before him, and then he shared this amazing truth. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I, and I, I try to think about what an amazing double simultaneous sense of relief and shame must have swept over those 11 brothers who participated in that betrayal at that moment. Um, and it's a demonstration to them, and I think it's a demonstration to us, his, Joseph's powerful words of grace were God's unmerited favor. Despite our most depraved evils, our adulteries, our betrayals, and it was unspeakable grace in the midst of that. And, you know, without our unfaithfulness, and this, this occurred to me a couple weeks ago as so I was praying through this, I started to realize, here are the ways God is faithful to me, and in each and every one of those ways, I am pretty unfaithful. And our unfaithfulness, our betrayals, create a backdrop for God's grace, like a, a black velvet um, sheet creates a backdrop for a diamond to sparkle ever more brilliantly. We're the black velvet... <laughs> God's faithfulness is the diamond, and it shines in the midst because of many times uh, the 
betrayals that we commit and the betrayals that others commit to us. And that's exactly what was happening here. Um, I don't believe in coincidences. When Martin asked me to preach this message, I thought, okay, God, what are you, what are you doing now? Uh, why this topic? Martin chose the topic, and why, why do you want me to speak on this? And uh, I'm look, looking at what, is, what has happened to me in, in being laid off. I recognized in me um, some sense that I was betrayed to a certain extent. And um, I, don't, uh, I don't think there was any evil uh, person who was uh, intending to betray me. Um, I committed 23 almost, well, actually more than 23 years of my life to an organization I loved and respected. And I created, my, my, uh, my work was primarily in the digital innovation space and digital communications. And I created, I started the web program there. I created some products that are now generating about a half billion dollars a year in revenue for World Vision. And so when they said, eh, don't need you anymore, sayonara, it didn't feel good. Uh, it felt a little bit like, uh, Brutus's knife. <laughs> and it shouldn't have, because I don't think anyone there. It was just business, and I was a, a new manager who didn't know me very well. And World Vision gave me a great severance package and, uh, um, and a great going away party, and, and I was very affirmed, and I appreciated it. But August 3rd, I was at the door. I was, sayonara, I was done. And, and while I don't think logically in my head I was betrayed, um, it felt like I was betrayed a little bit. And um, I've learned... 23 years at World Vision taught me one thing. That's things that oftentimes don't feel good. Or, uh, you know, somebody steps on you because uh, they've got an idea that they want to get budget for when your idea they don't like or whatever. Things happen and you get moved around, reorganized. It's always painful. And, you, and you're, you're tempted to go, oh, this is terrible. What's going on? Every single time that's happened in 23 years of World Vision, uh, God used it for good. He used it to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And so I've got this rational track record, this history. I know in my head, God does this. He's good. He's doing it for my good. He's doing it for the good of others and for the good of his kingdom. My heart doesn't always feel that way. That's my problem, okay? My heart feels betrayed at times. And... Um, it's head knowledge versus heart knowledge. And so for me, what I need to do is I need to understand God's faithfulness. How does it play out? How does it work out in my life? And looking at this passage, um, a couple of things I recognize. First of all, I'm almost embarrassed to share um, my sense of my feelings about what happened and being laid off with you because I know many of you have gone through much. This is, this is trivial. And many of you have gone through much more significant things than I have. I know um, people in here are sitting here who have experienced physical, emotional, sexual abuse by family members. That's that's the worst thing I can think of. People have been uh, betrayed by spouses who were unfaithful, and um, or by by brothers and sisters, or best friends, or boyfriends or girlfriends. There's all kinds of stuff that um, my heart goes out to you for that. And as Darlene and Jason and I were praying this morning, I felt like. I promised I wouldn't get take rabbit trails because I have a tendency to do that, but I felt like one little rabbit trail God wanted me to take was to tell you, to ask you, to beg you to look at Joseph and how and his life and, and ask the question, did God love him? And the, the answer is obviously yes. He was betrayed in incredibly painful ways, but God's steadfast love and his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace were poured out upon Joseph because of that. And I think many of you are sitting here asking, 
does God love me? How could these things be happening to me? How could such a terrible thing happen to me if God truly loved me? Does he care? Is he there? And the answer is in looking at people like Joseph and like Jesus as he hung on the cross and what they went through in their betrayal and the fact that they were able to turn their trust to God and see that God is good and he does all things for our good, for the good of others around us, and for the the good of his glory and his kingdom. So there are three things I identified as I was looking at the attribute of God's faithfulness that are closely linked to it, and these were very instructive to me. Um, And the question is, what does God's faithfulness look like to me? So I've been asking myself that question this week, searching Scripture for the answer. Uh, There's nearly 300 references. I don't know if you realize this. 300 references to God's faithfulness throughout Scripture. It's it's an important topic. And it's interesting to see what other uh, phrases and, and attributes of God are combined with those references. Are interlaced with it. So there are three things, three of them that really jumped out at me. One is the use of the phrase God's steadfast love put together with the phrase his faithfulness in the same verse. That occurs 39 times throughout scripture. God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God's faithfulness is driven by and informed by his steadfast love for us. It's unconditional love, steadfast love is a love that doesn't go away. A great one of these 39 verses is Lamentations in, in chapter 3. And this will sound familiar. It's a song that we sing many times just based on these verses. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning, right? Great is your faithfulness, O God. Great is your faithfulness. The truth is God's love for us is steadfast. It doesn't have an end. It doesn't even have a beginning. There's a turn of phrase that's also used in Scripture, um, and it's, it endures forever. It's, a, it's a, a song that's sung throughout Scripture. The love of the Lord endures forever, never ends. Um, it's also expressed through sacrifice. One of my favorite verses, Romans 5, 6 through 8, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says, while we were still weak, and that strikes me as pretty generous. <laughs> um, we're worse than weak. We are betrayers. Um, we betrayed him. We didn't recognize him. He came into the world. He created us. Our creator comes in, becomes one of us, walks around with us, and we say, we don't know you. Get away from me. Worse than that, we crucify him, we kill him. We don't like what he stands for, we want to get rid of him. And that's what we did to Jesus. Talk about betrayal. So to say, say, uh, when we were weak, while we were still weak, that's pretty generous. Um, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. According to Romans 5, Christ's willingness to die on our behalf was a living demonstration of God's steadfast love for us. Christ didn't go to the cross for the cross's sake. He went for the joy set before him, Scripture says, for the redemption of his errant children. The cross was the ultimate symbol of God's faithfulness to us. One of the other attributes tied very frequently to God's faithfulness is the attribute of truth. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He took the title truth for himself. And 
Faithfulness is tied throughout Scripture to keeping your promises, to telling the truth. God's word is golden. Jesus says, let your SBS and your no be no. Our word isn't quite so golden. I've recognized it in myself. I waffle a lot and I say, well, I didn't really mean that. And I didn't really mean the promise that would be due on Tuesday, you know, or whatever. And I don't feel that bad about that. My word is not often golden. I'm faithless many times in that way. And, and God's word is golden. He makes hundreds of promises throughout Scripture. And uh, he delivers on every one of them. Great verse. 11, uh, Revelation 19.11. He even takes these attributes, faithfulness and truth, and he takes them on as a name. Uh, John said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who's sitting on the white horse? Jesus! (laughs) His name is Faithful and True. And it also says he judges and makes uh, war. And that's the third thing that I saw is justice. Justice is often combined with God's faithfulness. I didn't realize until I started digging in uh, to these verses how that was true. And uh, a verse that you should know, is, and everyone of us probably has memorized, First John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You ever think about the way, I can see saying he's faithful to do this, but faithful and just, what does that mean? It's just, it's the right thing for God to do, to take our sins, and simply because we confess them, confession is agreeing with God that it's sin, right? He dumps the penalty for that on his son, and Jesus pays, and God's justice is satisfied. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And many of the passages that we look at about God's... um, Faithfulness are unconditional. This one's conditional. It says, if then, right? So if you do programming or math, you know, if then is a conditional statement. So if we confess our sins, he then is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God knows we cannot be fully forgiven and cleansed and restored unless we agree in confession with him that what what, it, what he calls sin is truly sin. So that, make, that means makes confession seriously important. Uh, agreeing with something that God says is true, indeed is true. And this is not, I don't think this verse is saying, hey, if you, you know, sin five minutes ago and then you get run over by a truck and you haven't confessed that you're, you're toast. Which sometimes is how this is interpreted, right? No, it means, how is the trajectory of your life one in which you've laid down, you, you've agreed with God and said, yes, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness daily. I need you to cleanse me. I need to be in this relationship with you. And he does it. He's faithful and he's just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us from sin. Incredible verse when you really dig into it. He delights in it. And for me, I I received Christ when I was eight years old. I confessed my sin. And uh, I've sinned a lot since then. I've sinned a lot since 8 o'clock this morning, probably. But God is faithful and just to forgive that sin and to cleanse me and hopefully as I'm being cleansed, I'm being becoming more like him each day, more uh, and a bigger blessing to, to the people around me. So, um, for me, jumping from the story of Joseph to what Jesus did for us this on the cross, some things become even clearer. Um, and I ask myself these questions. Were we, as evil human beings... Responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? The answer is yes. Did Judas betray Christ to his peril? Yes, he did. He was responsible. 
Um, was it the Father's path for his son to go to the cross? Yes. So it was God's plan. And here's one of those things you're seeing, God's sovereignty and man's free will. We don't get this. I don't get it. It doesn't, doesn't logic out to me very well. But if, if I truly have free will, is God really sovereign then over the results? Well, the story of Joseph says the answer is yes. It says, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How does that make sense? <laughs> Logically, it doesn't, but Scripture says it, and so you, you just kind of have to accept that. We are responsible for our actions. We are responsible for our betrayals, but God also somehow has the amazing ability to take those, those actions and those betrayals and use them for good in his plan. He is sovereign. It's amazing. Um, Christ's prayer in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane kind of demonstrates a little bit about this. He said, if, Father, if it is possible, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And we know that it was God's will that Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus willingly went to the cross. He submitted himself to God's will for the joy set before him. He could have taken himself off the cross. Scripture tells us he could have called down 10,000 angels. That's a lot of angels. One would probably do the trick. Take him off the cross, rain fire and brimstone down on all his betrayers, and be done with it. Would I, um, how would I do in, with the face of that choice? I don't think I would do very well. Praise God, he's God and I'm not. It's fascinating for me to see in the midst of all the trauma of the crucifixion, Christ's attitude toward his betrayers, and there were a lot of them. While he was hanging on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's really generous. Peter, well, Judas betrayed him, and he knew Judas was going to betray him, and he ate dinner with him dipped his, his bread in the, in the cup the night before. Um, Peter betrayed him three times, and how does he treat Peter? He comes back and says, Peter, love you. Feed my sheep. I have a plan for you. You are still with me. You are still part of my gang. Incredible, given the nature of Peter's betrayal of Jesus. Um, one of Christ's very last utterances on the cross is, is fascinating to me because I think it sort of illustrates the sense that you can feel betrayed, but know in your heart and your head that you're really not being betrayed. And it's the statement, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder if Jesus felt betrayed even by God who cut off uh, connection with him because Jesus was hanging on the cross representing my sin. It was part of the, part of the package. Jesus knew it was going to happen, but he must have felt incredibly betrayed. So where does this leave us? Um, like Joseph, like Jesus, we at times will feel the stinging pain of betrayal. Our betrayers may be oblivious. They may be evil. They may mean it for evil. They may just be oblivious. They may be people we totally love and trust and we're most vulnerable to. But we can trust in God in the secure knowledge that what those around us intend for evil, Scripture assures us, He intends for good. His steadfast love for us and his faithfulness toward us is our hope and strength. Looking heavenward when we're betrayed is the only way we can receive the power to forgive and to relinquish the right to vengeance. Just as uh, Joseph said, am I in the place of God to do vengeance? The answer is no. It's God's job. He's the one who takes vengeance. Are we up for the task? Will we respond as Joseph responded once his prostate prostrate? Gotta get that right. Brothers <laughs> came crawling. Uh, I knew I was gonna do that. I rehearsed that so many times. Prostrate brothers <laughs> came crawling at his feet. 
Will we be willing to trust God and reconcile? And I pray in my life that that's true, and I pray that that will be true in your life. Let's, let's pray together. Yes, the worship team comes forward. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your steadfast love for us. That's the message I wish, I hope, I pray that your Holy Spirit is drilling into the hearts of people who are sitting in here who have experienced betrayals and pain from those people that they trusted. And thank you for the way that you've ministered to my heart, even in my very trivial betrayal. Um, that you've lifted me up and you've helped me to, to see your good is coming. I may not see it now. We may not see it yet, but it's coming. And I think about Joseph sitting in prison. It was the attitude that you are good and that you're doing good that sustained him as he was in the pit, as he was being dragged along by camels to the desert, as he was being sold on the slave block, as he was in Potiphar's house being unjustly accused, and as he was in prison in the deepest, darkest dungeons, it wasn't simply his conclusion at the end of the the story. It was... It was the the knowledge and the hope and the faith that sustained him throughout that. And Father, I pray that you would help us to lean into that faith, that belief, that what we're going through today, there's a reason and a purpose, and that it's for our good and for the good of those around us and for the good of your kingdom. And Father, um, like Joseph, like Jesus, our desire is to trust you even when we are in the midst of difficult personal betrayal, even when it doesn't feel like we can trust you. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upward, to know that you are good and faithful and will be faithful to do the very best thing for us, for those we love, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Larry. As we come to communion, as we come to the Lord's table, think about God's faithfulness and the fact that all of humanity, all of history is centered around an act of betrayal, um, an act of betrayal to God, and that he took and made good from that, made good that we so much, so very needed. I think back that 2,000 years ago, it was... Jesus, who took his disciples into the upper room and spoke with them just hours before he would be crucified. And he gave them bread, gave them wine, and they didn't fully understand what was happening. But he knew. And God the Father knew many, many years before that what he would do to solve this problem that we have of sin. And it was so many years before, it says, the scripture says, even before the foundation of the world, that the lamb was slain, that Jesus was crucified. Now, does that literally mean that Jesus was crucified before he was crucified? No. No, it doesn't. But it means that God's plans and purposes, even before they're spoken to us, They're complete. He's faithful. That the need that we would have, even though it wasn't present yet before creation, he had already planned for the solution to our need. He's faithful before we have reason for him to be faithful to us. He's got everything lined up for our good. 
even the things that are difficult, even the things that hurt. He's for us, and he's got all of those lined up. So ponder that. Think about that as we, as we um, take communion. His great love, his great faithfulness for us. So as the men come down to serve communion, consider what Jesus has done. Consider what he's done for you, what he's done for us, and what he's doing for us into the future.